that's happening, let me introduce you to our church in case that you're brand new. Uh, we believe in, ooh, sorry, I forgot one thing. Um, can you go back to that previous slide, John? Um, when you give money here, every single dollar that you give into this bucket is matched by the church, and that then is sent to LifeWater, where we are drilling a clean, a clean water well for a village in Ethiopia called Tuchicha. And right now, we have incredible traction in that village. Um, they're learning about sanitation. They're learning about hygiene. They're learning about Jesus. And they're receiving absolutely uh, wonderful, sustainable, clean water from a brand new well because you, because you've given that. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? I love that. Okay. Um, so what do we believe as a church? Well, we believe three things. Um, we believe, number one, in hope beyond our brokenness. So all of us have a story of being lost. And, and you're here, hopefully, because you're beginning to experience in your life a story of being found. And that's what Jesus does. He finds us in the middle of, of however we're lost. And then he makes us whole. And so the hope that we have is that uh, you in this place are welcome here and that you have a story. And that story is not uh, what's been done to you. That story is not how uh, you failed. That story isn't even necessarily all of your incredible accomplishments. It's not so much about who you are as it is about whose you are. And you belong to Jesus and he loves you. And so that's what we believe that we have. There's hope beyond our brokenness. Second, we believe that we're called to trust our risen Savior. And we do that in all sorts of ways. We pray, we sing, uh, we show up, we serve, um, we listen. Uh, trusting God is us being convinced that God knows more than we do. Amen. Stephen is the only one who says amen. The rest of us are going... I don't know if I buy that all the time. Yeah, yeah. And that's true because what we do is we learn how to do that, don't we? we? We go our own way. It doesn't work out so great. And then we learn that if we trust God, if we listen and, dare I say it, obey, that when we actually follow through with the, what he asks us to do, that life gets better. And so we're in a scientific experiment. And that is that experiment is, is the more that we put our weight upon Jesus and listen to him and obey him, the better life gets. And so that's what we do as a church. Third, we believe that we're called to bring restoration. And so you've done that today. The money that you give will go to Gail and Gail will give that to somebody who doesn't go to our church and you have become the answer to someone's prayer this week. Isn't that great? And then on top of that, 25 families in Ethiopia have, are having their lives changed. They're their kids are no longer going to get sick because of dirty water, because of you. So that's what we get to do as a church. And each one of those, um, uh, those, that hope and that trust and that restoration, those have decisions attached to them, and they go like this. Let's read this together. A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God. Here's our decisions that we make every day. Ready? Here it is. Choosing to be changed by Jesus. 
and choosing to join Jesus in his resurrection work. So can you see that choosing to be changed by Jesus, that's our hope. Choosing to seek Jesus first, that's trusting him. And choosing to, choosing to join Jesus in his resurrection work, that's, that's restoration. So you've made a decision today to, to come to church, and I'm so glad that you're here. We get to worship, we get to uh, experience God together, but we also get to hear from him. And so uh, this is such an, uh, an awesome moment, and I'm so glad that you're here. Let's pray before we do anything else. Holy Spirit, please come. Thank you that you're already here. Fill this place with your, your powerful presence, Spirit of God. We bind up and mute everything opposed to Jesus that would be seeking to distract us during this time. We pray, Father, that you would speak to our spirits, our very hearts, deliver us, free us, set us afire with passion and care for you and for your kingdom and for your people. God, move in this place during this sermon, during this worship. We just surrender our hearts to you, God. We, we, what else can we do? Have your way here today. And all God's beloved saints said, So in John chapter 18, we've been in John for um, a couple of months now since Easter, actually. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be ending John. We'll be landing the plane finally in the middle of November. So one more month of John. And in John 18, we have the story about how um, Judas deals with difficulty and suffering and pain. Story about how Peter deals with difficulty and suffering and pain. And then we have a story about how Jesus deals with difficulty, suffering, and pain. And so all of us have in common with each other. We, we don't root for the same football teams or baseball teams. We don't belong to the same political parties. We don't, have, we don't hang out at the same places. The thing that we have in common is Jesus. And the second thing that all of us have in common is the fact that all of us have been hurt in life. That's what binds every single human being together on this planet. And so when, when you and I deal with suffering, pain, difficulty, disappointment, loss, how are we going to deal with that? And so today we see the Peter way, we see the Judas way, and then we see the Jesus way. That's where we're going today. You ready? There's, this week you're going to have a, a difficult person to deal with. You might be looking at the person next to you going, is it going to be you? This, this week you're going you're gonna to face somebody in your family that has an illness. You're going to have an illness, right? Maybe you're dealing with a diagnosis right now. This week, you're going to have something unexpected is going to happen. Uh, uh, it might be small, might be big. And, and today's passage is all about trying to help you to walk away with how to deal with that well. Okay? Here we go. John chapter 18, verse 1. Let's read this together. When he had finished praying, okay, stop reading. Um, so what, what are we talking about here? When he had finished praying, who's he? That's Jesus. Praying, well, let, what's the context? You got to remember that this, this is the end of this night where Jesus has had uh, an incredible meal with his friends. It started way back in John 13. He washes the disciples' feet. Do you remember that? 
the crusty bits, right? He washes all the crusty bits off their feet and he says, if you want to, uh, the way I'm loving you, I'm engaging you in your most difficult, gross places and loving you there. And when you love me, you love others the exact same way. Remember that? Okay, that's John chapter 13. And then it keeps on going. They have the Seder meal. Seder is a Hebrew word. It means order. Seder is the Hebrew word for order. And so that this meal that has an order to it, the order is taken directly from the book of Exodus starting in chapter 6. And it's the order of remembering how God delivered Israel from Egyptian slavery and bondage. Picking up what I'm putting down. And do you remember the centerpiece of that, of that Exodus story? It, it's, it's a woolly little quadruped. Sounds like this. What's the center of the story? A lamb, right? And that way the center of the meal is a lamb on the Seder meal, right? Except, except the Seder meal is a little bit different. And so... When he had finished praying, that's they had finished their meal. Judas had left in the middle of it to go betray them all. And then by the end of the meal together, they were talking and Jesus was saying, look, this is what's going to happen. Like, I'm going to go get arrested. I'm going to die and I'm going to leave this place. And Philip goes, just text me the address. We'll meet you there. And Jesus is like, you don't understand. Remember this, right? And then Jesus then prays like Paul preached two weeks ago. He prays for them that they would be one together, that they'd be united, but they would also be united to their heavenly Father. Right? And he prays for us too. So he's praying for our protection. He's praying for our unity. So that's when it says, when he had finished praying, that's where we're at in the story. Okay, now um, let me go back to the Seder meal for a second because I think this is important. Um, the Seder follows that narrative in the book of Exodus. And each one, um, starting in chapter 6 of Exodus, verses 6 through 8, there are four distinct promises that God gives. And each one of those promises in the Seder meal correspond to a glass of wine, which is, which is imbibed in the meal. Sounds like a fun, right? Let's go to church and everybody's going to have a bottle of wine. Right, because that's actually what happens, and so as they drink this this cup, each one of the cups corresponds to a promise. Let's read Exodus chapter six. Here's cup number one. It goes like this. Ready? Read with me. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So the first promise in the Seder meal is this that. God, I am the Lord, I've seen you in your bondage, and I'm going to deliver you, I'm going to rescue you. The second cup, when they're, and they're drinking together, in my case it would be grape juice, right? Second cup goes like this, read this with me, Exodus 6, 6, read it with me. I will free you from being slaves to them. So what's the promise? Freedom. That's the promise. And so in the Seder meal, the way that they do this is that they actually remember slavery. Um, they, they eat horseradish raw, right? They remember the bitterness of it. They dip cilantro in salt water, and they remember how hard slavery was so that they can remember 
how amazing it is that God has delivered them from this slavery and bondage, not only literally, but also spiritually. God has done that with them too. And then the third cup is, is this longer verse. The third cup goes like this. Read this with me. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. An outstretched arm, that has to do with power. Mighty acts of judgment. Do you remember all the acts of judgment in Exodus? The plagues, the plagues, right? That's if you're over 65 and you watch James Bond, Dr. No, the plane, the plane, the plague. Anyways, um, so... Huh? I know. Uh, So, with an outstretched arms and with mighty acts of judgment. So, those are the ten plagues. And I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. So, in one moment, God sets Israel free. And at the exact same time, their bondage is broken and they're adopted into God's family. Does that make sense? One act, two things happen. Slavery is broken, freedom is created, and you're adopted into God's family. And it's at this point, the the fourth cup has to do with, I'll give you a land. I'll give you the promised land, Israel, the modern country of Israel. I'll give you that land. That's the fourth cup. But at the third cup, Jesus did something. Jesus stops, and this is when you're supposed to um, eat the lamb. But there was something missing that night. With Jesus and his friends. There was no lamb. And the, the friends are looking around expecting, the disciples are looking around going, Jesus is like the lamb's going to come in, like, like they're going to open up the table and the lamb will pop up. You know, that's like, it's like, hey, we're going to go for barbecue. Oh, I can't wait. And then there's no meat. Wait, what? It's just vegetables. Jeff is going, oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. So, so everybody's wondering, where's the lamb? Because after you drink this cup, that's when you eat the lamb. And Jesus goes, he says something new. You hear it every month here at church when we have communion. And he lifts up that third cup and he says what? This cup is the new covenant that's promise, in my, in my blood. Now I want you to hold on to that just for a second because I'm going to explain it at the end of the sermon. But just remember that right here at this cup, that this cup, this new promise of God delivering us from bondage and adopting us as his own, equals the suffering of Jesus. Does that make sense? So just hold that thought right there. Okay. Verse 18.1. Let's keep on reading. When he had finished praying, read with me, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. There was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. So when he had finished praying, Jesus 
left with all of his disciples. They've just had a bottle of wine apiece. Right? Put yourself in the story. Let's go to the Mount of Olives. Right? They left with all his disciples. Is it daytime or nighttime? It's nighttime. You ever walk down a valley, down a hill, into a valley, up another hill, pitch black, no light, after drinking and having a bottle of wine? It's an adventure, right? <laughs> now, check this out. Here is the Kidron Valley modern day. On the right-hand side, there is um, Jerusalem. Those are the outer walls of Jerusalem, the big tall wall. There's the steps going down. And here in the bottom left, this is the American port or the Christian portion of the Kidron Valley because there's gravestones with crosses on them. But up into the, oh, sorry, one back, John Parrott, one back. Up into the left there, you see all those little white dots? Those are sepulchers. Those are coffins above ground. Next slide. Here you can see everything down on the bottom there, that's a cemetery. So to cross the Kidron Valley or the Valley of Kidron, when you leave Jerusalem, you go down this winding path and then you're walking through the valley and then you're walking through a cemetery and then you're walking up the hill to an olive orchard which still stands today, the same orchard that Jesus was in still stands today, and that's where the Garden of Gethsemane is. Make sense? So, did I mention that it was completely dark? Yeah. Okay, verse 2. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Why did Jesus go to the, across the valley of Kidron, through a cemetery, up a hill, and into an orchard. Why was that his hideout? Why was that the, where the lost boys hung out? Well, I think two reasons. This is my speculation. that This is not in the Bible anywhere. This is just my theory. Number one, I think that in an olive orchard, it would be really cool during the heat of the day. Um, it'd be quiet, so it'd be a place where they could talk but also would be kind of secluded, meaning that Jesus had, could have time to pray. So Jerusalem is hustling, bustling, you know, a million, hundreds of thousands of people in the city, a lot, lot going on there. Um, Garden of Gethsemane, in the olive orchard, it's a quiet, cool place for them to hang out. Two, um, again, my theory is that uh, what's in between Jerusalem and the orchard? A cemetery. Now, when does Jesus always show up in Jerusalem? Do you remember from the book of John? It's always during the high holy days. So Jesus doesn't show up to Jerusalem on a Tuesday when nothing's happening. He shows up to Jerusalem when a major religious holiday and festival is happening. And if you look in the book of John, every single time Jesus is in Jerusalem, he's always wrecking Christmas or Easter or Yom Kippur. Like he's literally wrecking every single holiday. Because he stands up in the middle of it and he says, this is all about me. And all the Pharisees are like, not again! Get him! And then where does Jesus go? He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. So all the Pharisees are running after him. And then, and then what? Then they go down into the valley, and then the Pharisees stop. Because, according to Jewish law, if you touch a grave, you become ritually 
unclean. So it's a brilliant move, I think, that Jesus picks the Garden of Gethsemane because he knows that none of the Pharisees can pass by without becoming ritualistically unclean. And if you're the little guy on the totem pole and you're running after Jesus and you come back and your boss says, how'd it go? I didn't get him. Why? What happened? I touched a grave. And the boss goes, you mean you're not available for the next seven days? Yeah, I got to go take a shower. Right? It's inconvenient. So that's my theory. I have no idea if I'm right or wrong, but I'm sticking to it. Back to Judas. So Judas now knows where the Lost Boy's secret hideout is, and he tells Captain Hook. So what do we know about Judas from the book of John so far? Number one, he doesn't say a lot, but when he does say something, um, in John chapter 12, uh, when Mary breaks the jar of pure nard on Jesus' feet, that's only like five or six days earlier, Jesus still smells like nard, right? When, when Judas makes a comment, he says what? Anybody remember? Yeah, why'd you do that? You could have given the money to the poor. And Jesus goes, shh, you know, and this is a great moment, right? So then, so we know that Judas is greedy, okay? We know that. Um, but Jesus, Judas doesn't say a lot. That's literally the only thing Judas says in the book of John. Um, we also know after that conversation that John himself gives a comment on Judas. And it's a very interesting little phrase. He says that Judas was in charge of the money, chapter 12, verse 6, and he used to help himself to what was in the offertory. So what do we know about Judas? Just, I mean, besides the fact that he's a little bit greedy, what do we know about him? Well, from these limited interactions, here's what we know in Scripture. Number one, Judas doesn't say much. Number two, that when Judas feels anxious or worried or like he's not going to have enough, what's his strategy? His strategy is to take a step back and to help himself, to take things for himself to make himself feel better. Does that sound familiar? Come on now, shrug your shoulders. Don't apply this to your neighbor. I know that you know that your neighbor has serious issues, right? You've already diagnosed the person sitting next to you accurately and brilliantly, but this is about what's happening in your life. Amen? So does Judas's strategy to deal with his pain, his anxiety, his suffering, unexpected difficulty, does that sound familiar? Number one, when that comes and I experience any kind of pain or anxiety or difficulty, I'm going to stop talking, I'm going to take a step back, and I'm going to take whatever I can to help pacify and deal with my own emotions. Does that sound familiar? More honest people. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I completely relate with Judas because this is exactly what I did. There was a season in our life about eight years ago when it was really intense, a really, really intense two years. It was an overall 10-year difficult period with our son's seizures and then brain surgery. Um, but there was two years that were really, really intense. And in those two years, Jonah, our oldest, was having seizures that were unstoppable and they were going on and on and on. And they were happening a lot. 
And every time he would almost die, I've told you this before, but um, I remember one Christmas sort of at the crescendo of this intense season, uh, Christmas Eve, uh, Levi, our youngest, he's back there. Um, He doesn't remember this, but he was probably three years old. We're at the church in San Luis where I was an associate pastor. And uh, Levi, in between Christmas Eve services, gets up on the stage and everybody's, oh, it's cute. And he just pukes everywhere. Um, So that was awesome. Uh, And it was fine. It was adorable. And that was great. And I was like, oh, man, you know, uh, you know, it's par for the course. Right. And then Christmas Eve, April decided to eat some rice with some some tomato soup. And of course, the next day, Christmas Day, she has um, food poisoning and she's vomiting everywhere. Dehydration has to go to the ER on morphine like it was crazy. And so then Christmas, the the 26 was just a mountain of laundry. We literally have the pictures of it. Then we decide that we're going to go up to the snow. Um, That was great. Levi got Giardia. April got Giardia. Um, And then a friend died, had to go home, interrupt the vacation, go bury the friend. And then uh, it was like, okay, are we done? And that was like a day before my birthday, on my birthday, making chocolate chip cookies with the kids. Jonah slips. He's like five, hits his head, has a seizure. Um, so that was like the, the, the crescendo of, of a really, really, really bad time in our life. And every single day of that season, I felt outmatched. I felt overwhelmed. I felt highly anxious. I just, and, and I, I couldn't tell you any of that at the time. I was just trying to get through it. But one of the things that I did was that I didn't talk about how I felt and, when, and when, when people would ask me to engage with how I felt, I wouldn't talk. Instead, I, I took a step back, and then I would find alcohol or food or movies, anything that I could get my hands on to take away the pain and to numb those nerves. That was my strategy. Isn't that fascinating? That the same strategy Judas uses is the same strategy I use. Now, Judas didn't just um, pick up this strategy from nowhere. He learned it from somebody. It was part of his family. He had been practicing it in the small areas of his life for a long time. And this is the thing about a strategy. If you continue to use the same strategy to deal with your pain, I'll just default to numbing. I'll just default to withdrawing. I'll just default to not talking. If you use that same strategy with little things, what's, what are you going to use when the big stuff happens? The same strategy. Because you will have practiced what it is and how it is that you're going to deal with life's difficulties and pains and sorrows. Can you relate? It's okay to say yes. Back to the story. Jesus and his friends, they're praying in the garden. And of course, his friends are falling asleep. You give anybody a bottle of wine and pitch black and a nice, comfy, cool garden, they're going to fall asleep. Jesus is pray. They're like, sure. Right? Um, and so Jesus is going through agony. At that point, he's saying, what am I going to choose? Am I going to choose this cup of suffering, this cup where through me, God is going to deliver all humanity from, from bondage and adopt them into his family through me? Am I going to choose to suffer 
or, 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 or not, or am I going to run away? And it, this moment is so stressful for him in the garden that he's literally sweating blood. And right at that moment, read with me verse 3. So Judas came to the garden. So just notice that Judas is faced with this horrible test. He's believed that Jesus, what Jesus has been saying this entire time, that Jesus actually is going to go to the cross and he is going to die for us. And Judas says, wait a minute, you know, I know the history of Jerusalem. Whenever they've arrested somebody who's claimed to be the Messiah, not only does that Messiah get killed, but what happens to all of his followers, his closest friends? They die too. And so Judas is like, uh, I didn't really sign up for this. So Judas's strategy, he's going to use it one more time. He's going to not talk about how he feels or what he's concerned about. He's going to take a step back and he's going to help himself. And this time what he's going to do is that he's going to throw Jesus and his friends under the bus and enrich himself by betraying them for money. Make sense? So, chances are that you've never betrayed a friend like Judas betrays Jesus, but I need you to connect the dots that the strategy Judas uses when things, when he encounters little problems is the same strategy that he will use when he encounters a big problem. You picking up what I'm putting down? Encourage your preacher. Say yes. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Okay. So, verse 3. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So we have the chief priests. They're in charge of the um, civil operations in Jerusalem. And then you have Pharisees. They're in charge of the temple. So officials and soldiers from both places, the chief priests and the Pharisees are there. So Judas is leading bureaucrats that don't mind touching graves from the chief priests and also the Pharisees. Plus he's got the police department, that's the chief priests, and the sheriff's department, that's from the Pharisees. Picking up what I'm putting down? 40 people, roughly. Anytime you go arrest uh, a, a group of 11 or 12 people, you need to overwhelm them with numbers. They're not going to bring two or three. They're going to bring a whole platoon of people. So they got 40 soldiers at least there. And what are they carrying? They were carrying... They were carrying torches. Read it with me. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Anybody carried a lantern before? How much can you see when you carry a lantern? Nothing. Right? You got about like a foot and a half in front of you. And when you carry a lantern, you don't carry it up high. You carry it down low. Because as it says in the Psalms, thy word is a lantern unto your feet. Right? And so a lantern illuminates what's at your feet by about, oh, two or three feet. And that's it. And of course, every time you stare at the lantern, what happens to your night vision? 
it just, it's done, right? My favorite moment in camping when we're at Big Trees Calaveras, where we love to camp up in the Sierra Nevadas, is April and the kids, they're tucked into our little 1963 canned ham travel trailer, our Aljo, right? You know, they're like a, they're like sardines packed in there, just a, a ready meal for a bear. And, 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 I'm outside, and I have the, the Coleman lantern turned on, and I'm reading usually some novel that has nothing to do with God, uh, some Brad Thor, some spy adventure, whatever novel, and I'm reading there. And, and I love being in nature's in the outdoors, and, and the bugs are flying around, and it's absolutely wonderful. And then a, a stick snaps in the background. And I can't see diddly squat. Why? Because there's a lantern right in my face burning my corneas and I have absolutely no night vision whatsoever. I expect every time that I turn the lantern off, like the moment I turn the lantern off and go to bed is always when my anxiety rises a little bit because I'm like, I'm going to turn the lantern off and there's going to be like five bears in a puma, like right there, like, like literally right behind me, but there never is. And so, so they're, they're carrying lanterns. And, and then what else are they carrying? Torches. Anybody ha ever carried a torch before? If you've ever carried a torch, it's the most miserable experience in the world because you have a stick and then it's wrapped in the stick is a linen cloth uh, dipped in wax and some sort of propellant. And so what happens to the wax when it's on fire? It drips. And where is that going to drip? onto your hand, and so you're holding the torch out kind of like this, but the torch illuminates what's above, the lantern illuminates down what's below, but you can't help it that every time you're looking at where you want to look, the torch is out in front of you, and so you're staring at this flame, and again, your night vision is shot. So picture it. You're in the Garden of Gethsemane, you're with Jesus, there's 45, 50 people, armor, swords clanking, walking up the hill, carrying torches and lanterns. You can see them a mile away. You there? You're in the scene? Okay. Jesus runs for the hills. What would you do? Literally, what would you do? You're in the garden all by yourself. It's pitch black. You can see them. They can't see you. You have all the advantage in the world to run. What would you say to your friends? I know what I would say. Run, Forrest, run. Now, run, go, run. But what does Jesus do? What is, what is Jesus' strategy to deal with difficulty and pain and suffering? Jesus, knowing that all was going to happen to him, he, he even knew what was going to happen to him. What does he do? He doesn't run. He went out. He faces the pain. He moves forward to the danger. He, he doesn't leave. He moves forward to the pain. And then he asks an amazing question. He says, who, are you, what do you, who do you want? Another translation would be accurate is, who are you seeking? Notice that Jesus does the exact opposite of Judas. Judas shrinks back when pain and difficulties come. Jesus steps forward into the pain. Why? Why does Jesus do that? Here's why. 
because Jesus knows that he's not alone. Look, if, if you're all alone in this world, then when the threats come, run. But what if God himself is by your side? What if he's in you? What if he's with you? Because that's what we believe. And that's what we know to be true. And that's what Jesus trusted with every fiber of his being, that his heavenly father was with him and in him and around him and the Holy Spirit was filling him and that he had the ability to step forward into any difficult relationship, into, into dealing with any difficult person, any difficult situation. And he knew that because he could step forward into it and that God was with him, that that most difficult thing would be transformed because he was bringing God to the table. And that's what God does. Amen? God takes difficult situation, and all y'all are difficult situations. Right? There's no perfect people allowed in this church. We all got problems. God takes all of our difficulties, and what he does is as he steps forward into our lives, them and us, into something better. So, what does Jesus do? What happens next? I love this. Watch what Jesus does. Jesus, knowing that all was going to happen to him, went out and asked them a question. Who is it that you want? Now, he's speaking. They can't see him because they've lost all their night vision. For them, it's just for the soldiers. It's just a, they're all illuminated, but Jesus is just a voice speaking into Speaking from the darkness. Make sense? So, verse 5. Read this with me. Jesus of Nazareth, they reply. Who are you seeking? We want Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus responds. Ready? I am he. Now, that is a perfectly legitimate translation of two Greek words. One is ego. That means I me. That means I am. It's the exact same Greek words that are in every other in every other sentence and translation in the New Testament and Old. It's I am. The soldiers thought that they were going into the, into the orchard to arrest a rebel, and instead they found God. How incredible is that? How surprising is that? And here's one of my favorite moments. Jesus says, I am. Judas the traitor was standing there with them. Read verse 6 with me. When Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Say what? Read it again. When Jesus said, No, no, don't say it. Come on. Put some verve into it. Come on. Give it some zhush. Ready? When Jesus said, they drew back and fell to the ground. What does it take for 45, 50 grown soldiers to fall back into the ground? It's a concussion. There's power emanating from Jesus. When he speaks the name of God, there's a shockwave that comes from his voice and from his name itself. And everything that stands opposed to Jesus falls to the ground and is flattened. Yeah, baby! Come on, right? 
If I was one of the disciples, they're like, okay, Jesus, go. That was a pretty good flex. Now let's do this, right? You know, it's exciting. Woo! And next comes my, I love this moment. I love this moment. Ready? So just picture it. 50 guys on the ground struggling to get up. They're all turtled, right? You know, they got their, head, they got their suits on. They're struggling to get up. And then Jesus goes like this. He says, um, who, who, who are you looking for again? And then all the soldiers are like, I don't want to say the name again. Like, don't make me say it again. Like, uh, all the privates are like, you say it. No, you say it. No, you say it. No, you say it. I'm not saying that name again. So, I don't know, sergeant or something like that. He says, next verse, says, Jesus of Nazareth, they said. But I think maybe they went like, Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus of Nazareth. They're a little bit more timid this time, right? Because at this point, they've guessed that they're no longer in control. And when you're a police officer or a soldier and you come in force to arrest a rebel, you are taking control of that situation. And that situation will only end one way with that rebel or that, uh, that perpetrator in handcuffs arrested. Notice what Jesus does next. Verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. That's a command in the Greek. Let these men go. Um, anybody ever seen a perpetrator about to be arrested commanding police to do something and the police follow the perpetrator's directions? It doesn't happen that way, right? The police and sheriffs are there to command, and when they command... The, the person being arrested follows directions, not the other way around. But by the end of the night, actually, this is exactly what's going to happen. None of Jesus' friends will be arrested. And Jesus is going to protect everybody that he's with and loves. Again, notice Jesus' strategy. When difficulty comes, he steps forward. He speaks into it. He speaks the truth into it. The truth is powerful. When they get up again, and resistance always will happen when you're stepping forward into a difficult situation. Jesus stands his ground. He speaks the truth again. And then when he's exposed and, and, and he's vulnerable, his move isn't to protect himself. His move is to protect his friends. That's Jesus' strategy in dealing with difficult things and painful situations. And it works. All of his friends, verse 9, John the narrator writes, this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. And that's exactly what is going to happen. None of his friends are arrested. None of his friends are killed that day. Verse 10. Now we get to see how Peter responds to difficulty. Are you ready for Peter? I love Peter's response. It's so great. Then, read this with me. Then Simon Peter who had a sword, drew it, and struck the high priest's servant. The servant's name was Malchus. He cut off his right ear. In Luke, we will read how Jesus will, I mean, the ear's on the ground, and Jesus will touch Malchus's head, and Malchus is, will grow it. Literally, his ear will be healed. So we're in staff meeting this week, and, and I'm like, well, I mean, Malchus has a new ear, but then he's got his old ear on the ground, and he's, you know, he's got his ear there. 
then, then our minister of congregational life, who happens to be my wife, says something very helpful. She says, oh, Malchus got a souvenir. <laughs> and at that point, I lost all control of the staff meeting, and, and Paul wasn't helpful, and, and Luke wasn't helpful, and Irene wasn't helpful, and Hillary lost it. I mean, it was just, it was absolutely hilarious. Uh, it was great. A souvenir. It was fantastic. So April and I, um, we, we, went to, we went to Spain a couple of weeks ago, um, and we got to go to the chapel of Malchus. And, um, and there, there I got a souvenir. <laughs> and this is a replica of Malchus's ear, which was cut off and then later healed. And um, I think Mackenzie Sumner, I, I think you need a souvenir, right? <laughs> This is, this is for you. It's a little bit smelly, um, but there it is. There it is. A souvenir. So, so Peter, Peter cuts off Malchus's ear. Huh. Uh, so what's Peter's strategy? What's Peter's strategy? How's he dealing with pain and suffering and difficulty? He's lashing out. And what Peter believes is that Peter believes is, I got to do something and I'm all alone and so I got to do something now. And so he gets busy. Uh, he's constantly trying to prove to Jesus that he's the guy with the wisdom, the right strategy, the correct answers to the test, the one who can walk on water, the one who's brave enough to chop off the ear of Malchus. Why? Because Peter's trying to prove that he can overcome difficulty and failure and suffering by doing something and making it all better. Does that sound familiar? Come on now. Come on now. Diagnose thyself. Does that sound familiar? We all love Peter because we can relate with him. We see failure slowly rolling towards our friends and our family. Um, and what do we do? We jump in. Right? We jump in to save. We jump in to fix. We give advice. We say, here, let's do this. Let's uh, help. Um, if you're a parent, right, we see our children suffering, no matter how old they are, and we say, well, no, 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 don't, no, Ed, come on, no, 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 stop, no, 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 just don't, don't do that. And, and then, and that's appropriate when they're like 12 and, and 10 and 8 and 4, and, but then we do that when they're in their 30s. How does that work out? Not well. Not well. No. Right? Because kids expect that the, that the helicopter, that's us as parents, that follows them wherever they go, they, well, they expect that the helicopter will land when they leave the house. But we don't do that. We're constantly throwing out ropes. Hop on! Come on, have you, watch out! And after a while, they're just like, back off! Right? It's true. And, but this is Peter's strategy. Right? We, we don't want to, well, we freak out and we don't want pain and suffering to happen. And so we think that we've got to do something. And, and what that means, what that means is that it means that you have the arrogance and the audacity to believe that you can predict the future. That's number one. And number two it's also the arrogance and the audacity that you could prevent the bad thing from happening. And number three, that, that 
if what you think is bad would happen or the best good isn't happening, that, that, you're, that, that you think that robbing your kid or your family member of a learning opportunity will somehow work out better for them. How, how does that go? Not well. Not well. And I do this all the time. I've perfected this coping mechanism. I'm really good. You got a problem? I'll fix it. And every time I fix that problem, you know what, that problem, you know what ends up happening? My fixing the problem becomes the problem. Every time. And Peter experienced the exact same thing. And so how does Jesus respond to Peter trying to save the day all by himself? Verse 11, Jesus suggested to Peter, is that what it says? Jesus gave Peter optional advice. Is that what it says? Jesus um, gently said to Peter, is that what it says? What does it say? Jesus commanded Peter, like he's commanding you, put your sword away. Do not lash out. Stop trying to fix it all by yourself. And then he says something very interesting. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? What is he saying? Well, I think we're right back to the beginning of the sermon now. I think he's, he's referring to the same cup that he lifted up during the Seder meal. It's the cup of our salvation. It's the cup of, of judgment. It's the cup where God, with outstretched arms and mighty acts of judgment, saves you and me, and at the exact same time adopts us into his family. That's the cup. And that cup, which is the new covenant, is in his yeah. And this is what Jesus is saying. Look, I'm going to step forward into the pain and into the suffering, and I'm going to transform it with my own pain and suffering for you. I'm going to take the worst invention of cruel torture ever created called the cross, and I'm going to transform it into a symbol that is known around the world as a symbol of life and hope. Because that's what Jesus does. He doesn't run from problems. He doesn't run from your problems. He doesn't lash out and chop off your ear when you're misbehaving. What does he do when he encounters your pain and your suffering and your rebellion and your problems? What does he do? He takes a step closer and then he transforms it and you. That's what he does. He's always moving closer to you. So you got the Peter way. And you got the Judas way. And those are choices. Those are choices that you have right now. Am I going to live as an orphan, as though I'm all alone? Am I going to stop talking, take a step back, and just sort of grab things to help me get, feel satisfied? Or am I going to wildly strike out and swing my sword as though I'm all alone and i got to fix it all by myself? Are you going to do those? The answer is no. Say, No! 
That's right. Don't do that. Why? Because you're not an orphan. You belong to Jesus. He's adopted you into his family. You are belong to him. He's forgiven you. He loves you. You're his. And so you know what you can do? You can do the Jesus way. And what's the Jesus way? Is that you step forward confronting the difficult situations in your life, not alone, but with, with Jesus. You bring him into that situation. God, what should I do here? Jesus, how do you want me to handle this? Jesus, I'm praying for this person. Please, please change their heart. Please change my heart towards them. Jesus, I've given up on this person. I've given up on this situation. God, remove that apathy. God, I, I doubt that you can handle this. God, change my disbelief. Bring him forward into the difficult thing that you're dealing with. And you know what happens when you do? This is the best part. This is the best part. When you do, when you do, Jesus will speak his name into the darkness. Jesus will speak his very name into your darkness, and that which is standing against you will be flattened. You will be protected. You're safe with Jesus, so stand with him. Lord Jesus, I pray for each person here that you would bless and seal and protect all the good things that we've sung and, and that's been spoken here today through your word. You would bless it and seal it inside the hearts of my friends. God, and there's, uh, there's people here today that have yet to say yes to you. We've been on the run for a long time as we've employed the strategies of Judas and Peter to try and get by and they're not working anymore. And so, Jesus, we invite you into our life. Forgive us our sins. Redeem us. Save us. Deliver us. We need you to simultaneously break the chains that are around us and adopt us into your family because we're so tired of living alone. And so, Jesus, we invite you in. Be our Savior today. Be our Redeemer today and all the days of our life. And Lord, we, some of us, we, we know this truth. We know all of these truths, but we slip back into being Peter or Judas and using those strategies. And, and so today, once again, we say no to living like an orphan. So this week when we face difficulty, this week when we face hardship, this week when we face a difficult relationship, God, would you please whisper to us that we are not alone and that we, that we might bring you forward and face that darkness and have you speak into it and transform it for your glory and your kingdom. And all God's people said,